Ignite your curiosity with Austin next. We're watching Austin transform from a thriving ecosystem into a global superstar. With our host, Jason Scharf, we aspire to better comprehend the true nature of innovation. Together, we will uncover what makes a successful ecosystem and navigate the technologies shaping our future. Now let's dive into what's next. Is scientific research and discovery speeding up or slowing down? Where is the innovation on in how we fund and conduct experiments? These are the questions we address today as I'm joined by leaders from the Foresight Institute, Dow, and Arcadia Science. Well, I'm excited to have this conversation about what does decentralized science mean? And so Sime, Allison, and Vincent, thank you very much for joining the podcast. Thanks for having us. Yes, thanks for having us. So I think the easiest way for us to kind of get started is, you know, we'll kind of go around and ask everybody for a kind of quick intro on yourself and the, uh, the organization that you're a part of, and then we'll, we'll dive into what's going on. Sime, do you want to start? Sure. Uh, I'm Sime Chow. I'm a scientist and a co-founder and CEO of Arcadia Science. Um, I'm also Chief of Strategy at Astera Institute. Allison? I'm Allison. I'm not the co-founder, but the current CEO of Foresight Institute. Foresight has been around since 1987, uh, but I've been leading it since, I guess, like yeah, a few years now, um, yeah, also in the Bay Area, and recently met up with a few people from Astera. So really happy that we get to meet each other on this podcast, you might, uh, and um, have loved collaborating with Vincent for a while. So thanks for having us. Awesome. Yeah, I'm uh, Vincent Weisser. My background is more in traditional startups on uh, every aspect. And I'm one of the co-initiators of VitaDAO, funding translational longevity research and leading ecosystem efforts at Molecule, which is like a scientific marketplace. So I want to start off on the really big question. We, there was a recent Nature article that said papers and patents are becoming less disruptive over time. We've had Tyler Cowen's great stagnation, data seeing about like the average age for NIH R1 grants. So on one hand, we're seeing all this data information coming out saying that science and innovation is slowing. At the same time, in the last couple of years, we have CRISPR and all the LLMs. So first, I want to ask broadly, do you think that science and research and innovation is moving slower than, say, kind of that crazy period from the 1900s to the 1950s? Uh, I'll take the first stab at the risk of saying something provocative. Provocative um, is good. Yes and no. <laughs> I think like as a scientist, I'm always like, yes and no, because it really depends on how you measure that. On some levels, I would say it does feel like that, that, you know, our willingness to like take risks in, in basic research seems to be going down and that like sort of like big leaps of progress feel like they're slowing down. On the other hand, we're really accelerating the generation of data and are, you know, bringing into like different technological toolkits, which ultimately does speed us up in other directions and more science is happening outside of like the traditional academic institutes, even though it's not super visible all the time. So I always have a really hard time with this question because it really like it needs sort of like more precise framing about what aspect of it we're talking about. Yeah, to jump in, I, like I, I fully agree. I think the conversation also like from the progress studies movement and other like Tyler Cohen and others, I think is sometimes a bit flawed because it's too simplistic and like just taking a, a measure that I think is not even the goal of science, which is might be GDP growth or something. And I think it's very nuanced, as I said, and I think like 
maybe one aspect that I think is maybe obvious, of course, is that the especially in recent years, I think there's been an explosion in new mechanisms and new experiments, how to advance science. And of course, those will take uh, many years to bear fruit. But I think actually it's probably uh, at an inflection point where ultimately I expect science progress to actually speed up over the next few decades due to many factors. But I think it's it's also like maybe science progress has been easier on the surface 50 or 100 years ago with more low-hanging fruit than it, than it might be nowadays. And I think fundamentally, maybe also some of the current instit- institutions are flawed fundamentally in, in how they approach it, like the NIH as a great example. But I think we can yeah, go into more depth. But I think some of these new scientific experiments in institutional design and in new scientific startups and uh, focused research organizations, efforts like Arcadia or, or also ours with decentralized science, give me hope that there's like a new path to get like back to more scientific progress. Well, if you're asking, we start with the the context and it needs to be more nuanced. Let's let's go down a level then. How should we be measuring this? As you said, is it just like GDP or total factor productivity? Is it the number of papers? What's the thought of if we want to actually have this discussion, what's the right way that we should be thinking about? Are we going faster or slower? I mean, I think in my view, we should basically be measuring this in like a lot of different ways, depending on the kind of science that you're trying to pursue. Like people too often try and collapse science together as like one monolithic thing. But there is like sort of translational science and within that there's therapeutic science, there's other types of science, there's sort of like, you know, uh, there's just many different categories. So depending on what your scientific goal is, I think there needs to be more sophisticated sort of like metrics for each of those. And so, I, yeah, I would say maybe like the way to think about sort of translational therapeutic science is like, how many drugs are we getting to market that are like helping people? And then maybe even more principled is like, how many patients are we helping solve this or that problem? And then it would look very, very different for some other area of science, right? Yeah, I mean, this is kind of end of one, but just when I look at kind of like uh, the history of foresight, so sometimes when we have these conferences, we just had one on molecular nanotechnology with the goals of like molecular 3D printing or creating molecular breadboard. And when I look kind of at our conferences from 25, sometimes 30 years ago, we had the same goals back then. And so I think that is one, I think a question or like an answer to the question of like, you know, are we making more progress? If you just focus on these kind of like high hanging fruits, something, for example, like really uh, solving rejuvenation or making progress on molecular 3D printing or on something like whole brain emulation, which is something that I guess like we focus on a little bit more there. I think we actually really haven't seen very much progress at all. It's not just like you would expect like 37 years later uh, that it's not just that we have made progress on goals, but also that we now have higher hanging goals. But the goals have stayed the same, at least like within our community. Like it's not even that we like are making a lot of progress, but gradually starting to make progress on the goals that we had 30 years ago, let alone even coming up with larger goals, you know, with more ambitious goals. So I think that's kind of crazy, you know, just like from a mimetic level, like that we don't even like aim much higher than we have 37 years ago. If anything, we're just gradually making progress on these goals. So I think that's just, I guess, from a more experiential level, kind of saddening to me. What, what I would add is like, I think connected to that, like, especially, of course, like the progress in AI, which I think broadly, of course, is then more in the field of like engineering technology, I think shows shows us that uh, taking like bigger leaps and like more ambitious goals for things that might unlock a lot of breakthroughs, like are harder to to do, right? But like the the breakthroughs have been quite obvious in AI. 
But I think very concretely, which I think is interesting to zoom in on, like where I spend a lot of my time is biomedical R&D. And we work uh, quite closely with an amazing researcher called Jack Scannell, who wrote a lot about like declining returns in biomedical R&D, like what he phrased Eram's law, like the opposite of Moore's law. And, and I think that's very real on the, on the surface. And there's like a lot of different reasons for why biomedical R&D returns came down. But if you really zoom in and try to unpack it, like it, it's quite complicated, even like on the incentives of pharma to overstate uh, their spending for R&D to justify higher drug pricing on probably like very actual, like declining R&D productivity in big pharma, but also where like now like smaller biotechs play this part and might have higher biomedical R&D productivity and academia's uh, biomedical R&D productivity like, of course, it's also a bit skewed and like, it's not a goal of academia to check out like high ROI biomedical progress, but still like most of the blockbuster trucks come out of academia, even though academia is not set up to create like high ROI, like biomedical R&D progress. So, so I think just like zooming in even on, on that very concrete example, which of course is very relevant to like progress in drug discovery broadly and like cancer drugs and other things really i think shows quite clearly how it's very nuanced and like where there's of course whole new fields trying to uh, take a different look at it like longevity research as a most concrete example where it's like way too early to track r&d returns but maybe fundamentally where they're um, more possible because the market is bigger for like age-related diseases and and for different approach to tackling them so i think it's it's very nuanced and one has to zoom in on like different scientific subsectors and different specific metrics and then how also those metrics are flawed and biased to have trends and actually this biomedical R&D return like it has been like 8% in like 21 or something and like 2% in 22 like it, it's completely like going up and down it's not very like uh, smooth and then of course even things like cost of capital play into that like it's it's very hard to say because there's not that many data points frankly like on even biomedical R&D returns. I wanted to loop back to Allison something you had said with the, the the goals at the highest level hadn't really changed in you know thirty seven years. So is that because as we said it's a high fruit problem? Which I haven't never heard it phrased that way, but I like it. Where that we just we've got a long way to go. Now maybe we're not looking at the direct financial ROI because we're still doing in many cases fundamental research like where physics was in the nineteen you know nineteen hundreds nineteen tens on the bio side, or is it the way we're thinking about these goals? Like they're too abstract, like the war on cancer or these really, you know, even, even in the longevity space where it's, you know, we've seen that language change from, you know, lifespan to health span, but really getting down into more concrete types of KPIs in the way that we're thinking about this, because can we not, can we not break through if we're, if we, we have to be kind of thinking differently. I think, you know, for let's say, let's take, for example, like the rejuvenation goals. I do think that within at least our sub community of people that have cared a lot about this stuff, they had always or like had like their thinking about um, longevity technologies hasn't changed very much. Obviously, like it's also the question of like, who do you ask? You know, are you asking the broader public or are you asking uh, kind of like folks that were trying to like make progress on these more like, let's say, high hanging fruit for a while. And I think, for those, there isn't very much like, I guess, a reframing that needs to be done. But I think 
if anything, things got harder over time from an institutional or like historic or like social perspective, because, you know, like, I don't know if you know the, the book, like the, what is it, the history of, uh, of, of IRBs, where it's basically like, um, you know, it's, it's a really great case in point of just like kind of mission creep from many organizations that perhaps there was once a really good reason to establish them to really like, you know, make sure that uh, drugs or like even like other interventions or something get um, get developed in a safe way. Uh, but then over time, obviously, they have mission creep and, you know, they take on a lot of other individual, yeah, I guess just like responsibilities that really weren't in their charter at the beginning. And, uh, you know, it's, it's the same with the FDA of like the deaths that, uh, you know, like the deaths that you can count versus the ones that you cannot count. And I think um, over time that just gets worse. So like even if, let's say there were a few pretty sane institutions that were developed to kind of like safeguard scientific progress over time they just turn into these like massive creepy monsters that um i think yeah just like are totally out of bounds in uh in, in terms of like the the types of responsibilities that they concern themselves with so i think if anything that got worse but many people that i think have cared about these fields for a long time i think they did have a good lens even early at the beginning well, and with the scope creep and even the the institutional stasis that ends up happening. I mean, I'm not sure if you guys saw this, but like when Oppenheimer came out, there was this age graph of like the average age of the junior scientists and above who worked, uh, worked there. And it was like 31. And like the idea that today, if we were to do a Manhattan project, if the average scientific age would, would not be 31, it would probably be closer to like, I'm just guessing like 50, because you have this kind of stasis, I, I feel like in a lot of these institutions. And I also wonder if that might be one of the causes of these goals not moving. It's like, well, we, we're going down this path and this is the path we need to go down. And it's really hard if that's your life's work and research to say, nope, actually this, this thesis was wrong and we have to go this completely other direction. So I actually have a question about this. I mean, there's, there's an assumption around this question that I always struggle with, which is like, I don't understand why people say the average age of a scientist has gone up because I don't know that that's true. It's like when we start counting has gone up, but like science happens before someone is like tenure track. A lot of the most exciting science that's happening is actually conducted by students and postdocs in the lab. So I think of them still as like the core sort of like working force, creativity force of our scientific enterprise. And so I guess I was just like curious how y'all think about this problem like do y'all think that the actual age of like the work work force is going up or just like when we start giving people recognition and like resources and autonomy yeah my sense is that of course through tenure and right like it's similar even like in in politics right like the people that get the credit and like who run the labs like those people get older i think to an extent and and keep their positions for longer and and I think even with some of like my young scientist uh, friends, like they have a harder time to to rise at a young age, right? It's hard hard to um, have autonomy over your scientific decisions as a twenty something year old, which of course is completely normal in the tech tech like tech world, for example. But it's not normal in academia and science, right? And I think that's for me one interesting trend, which I think is now frankly also shifting a bit with um, some like of these new scientific experiments. Which I think often are also run by younger scientists and, and involve younger scientists and giving them more autonomy than maybe in very big labs run by much older scientists. Which, frankly, like I, I don't think even the the age thing is like um, probably like 
causal in, in driving down scientific progress or something. Yeah, I think it's kind of interesting that um, when I came from Germany to the Bay Area, it was really um, kind of like just very obvious how much younger people were here when they had a lot of responsibility. But that was not in academia, um, but that was more like in other parts of life. Because I think in Germany or like in many European countries, you have these like um, specific hierarchical hoops uh, that you first need to jump through to like get to a specific pedigree. Uh, and no matter how good you are, you still need to do this one year of internship before you can like move on uh, one step up in the ladder. And in the Bay Area, it was kind of like the opposite. Like, you know, I arrived here and like immediately was handed down like you know, responsibility after responsibility. And like, I think people here, if they want uh, something or if they're, you know, if they're hungry for something, they just like uh, much quicker can like rise, rise up. So I, I felt like uh, there were lots more people that were much younger and like higher, uh, higher positions, but obviously academia is probably somewhat of a, you know, it corrects a little bit for that because the academic institutions, you know, like you, they are usually a little bit more hierarchical. And so probably in the Bay area, in the more academic leaning organizations you know there was a little bit more of a stand standardization uh, between uh kind of like the age here and the age in like other european countries but now that you have a lot of like alternative science funders that are not academic uh, but that are kind of like creating their own let's say like private or philanthropic uh, research organizations there i think maybe you see again like a, a move again to uh, more younger researchers at least here in the bay area or where these organizations these alternatives to academia exist maybe you see a uh, like a move back to more younger folks being in higher in higher positions of leadership not sure. It's a total wild speculation, but I could I could see it happening. I think that's, that's my perception as well. Is it's not it's, to me to your point. It's not that the average age taking apart the Manhattan Project example, but it's not that the average age of the scientists going uh, going out, but it's the almost the average age of influence and power in the scientific community has gone up. And so, yeah, you're going to be you know you got to do your and I, and Allison, I think to your point, I, I've seen that really even more so in academia, like, okay, I'm going to go, I get my PhD where I'm doing all the work of the the PI and then I got to go do a postdoc and then maybe I can go do something else. And it's like, okay, great. I finally can do my own thing and, and really head down in that direction when I'm in, you know, I, I think the average age for when I looked up the NIH was like 42. Like, okay, you've been doing this for 10, 15 years and now you can actually do something you know you are the primary going versus in the you know in the entrepreneurial world you've got the idea and you got the you know you can make the pitch and i'm oversimplifying but you can do that at 25. yeah so maybe the like sort of like increase in age where that happens now is more of a not so much causal to vincent's point but like more a symptom of the increase like gatekeeping friction and bureaucracy we've layered into our work that results in that, which can, of course, like affect sort of productivity overall. This is something I've also felt like it's suddenly being talked about. I don't feel like in the last, you know, before the last few years, it's really permeated the, the culture. And I think part of that, you can say chicken and the egg, whether it's been the establishment of new institutions has led to us talking about it because people have seen the problem or it's being talked about more, which is leading to the establishments of new institutions. But why do you think it's starting to actually permeate into the general zeitgeist and the general culture, all this, all the uh, hardcore, you know, biologists are, are like, I'm not talking about social science here. And no, I was curious to get y'all's perspectives on this. Cause I think you probably think about this a lot. Yeah. So I think uh, to some extent that it is a chicken egg problem, but also to a different extent, I think 
people like some people have always known like it's definitely not like a an, a new thing that people were upset about uh, since yesterday um but i think it took a while for those folks to get into the money to actually start these organizations and then once these organizations exist then i think it also permeates the the mainstream a little bit more so i think maybe that was uh, kind of like some uh kind of like some some historical uh, bit, bit bit and pieces there and i think once you have alternatives like these more alternative Uh, funding organizations now that kind of like allow people to take money from academia or not from like normal VC funding, but from somewhere in between. And then I think you also have more people speaking up because now they have the safety of this alternative uh, organization as like pretend, like a cover, you know, for them to like, you know, kind of like speak, speak their truth in that regard. And so I think there's probably like lots of kind of like downstream consequences from there. But I think it was a little bit of a, you know, a few people knew they had the funding to do something about it. Once you had these alternative organizations that kind of like um, that emerged, you had other people being able to flock to them and give them some kind of psychological security to, to then speak up broader. And then so it sort of kind of started trickling down. That's how, how at least like in the sub-community here, I feel like it's a little bit true, but on a larger scale, who knows? <laughs> I think an interesting one, like I really like this article by Nadia Asparova, if I pronounce her correctly, is this trend of like tech getting involved in science funding. I think it's probably like what like all of our organizations have in common that they like are underwritten and backed by uh, tech founders. And I think some of the most inspiring like progress has came from from the tech world, right? Like even the scientific sphere. And I think Nadia makes this interesting observation, which I think is is very true, that ultimately even like the first tech wave of like successful tech founders took on like gigantic scientific efforts, right? Like the Bill Gates's of this world, the Jeff Bezos's. But then even the, the, the next waves of, for example, like even the, the, the crypto technologists took on a different focused scientific initiative And and I think it's it's quite interesting, like with all of these like inspiring new scientific efforts, that usually there's like uh, someone successful from the tech world behind it, and and often not national science funding bodies. But I think probably like what almost like all these new scientific efforts have in common, like a lot of them are backed by like the Schmidt Futures of this world, by the Patrick Collison's or Jet McCallips and Vitalik's. Like, and I think. That is like an interesting trend where like I think the tech world is also taking to bigger, more ambitious goals like science to figure out like uh, if things are broken, how could they be improved? Take the lessons also they learned from the startup world, which of course is often very like like not hierarchical and involves much younger people with like much more radical hypothesis and like much radical, more radical goals. And I think culturally, like a startup Culture is, of course, very different from like an academic culture. And I think a lot of these new scientific efforts resemble startups more than they resemble like old academic institutions. And I think that's probably one of the reasons also why there's uh, reasons for hope that uh, those new scientific efforts will be, uh, be, be more fruit. Yeah, I guess I think about it, I mean, like as a biologist, sort of almost in like evolutionary terms, like when you think about when there are Cambrian explosions, and I know that word is like used, probably overused, but really what you're talking about is like not so much that the problems have changed or the selective pressures inherently have changed, but rather than there's a change in sort of the, the conditions and the ingredients of what's going on, that suddenly opens up like a whole different realm of like solutions that you can explore. And so I, I can actually like probably speak most concretely about like our experience at Arcadia and me personally, 
But I think some of these things are generalizable in exactly what they're saying, which is that like, it's not so much that the problems that we're tackling have never been identified and articulated and experienced before. They're very widespread. It's that suddenly, actually, we have like a shit ton of money. We have a shit ton of money and the person, people giving it to us explicitly want us to do something different with it. So the the, the resources and the expectations around it have changed. And so I think that's reflective of like a broader thing that's happening where I it's one of the most exciting times in history, I think, to be a scientist because you have movement of money into different hands. You have technological advances that allow like communication across like a wide swath of the population very quickly, like social media and whatnot. So we're not gatekept in that way. And then like COVID was just like gasoline on all of that because we were all fed up and not doing very much at home in our normal systems anyway, in my case, right? Like I was just like urgently trying to find some other ways to be useful and have an impact. So all of these things coming together at once was like our Cambrian explosion. And it's not to say that the people with the money are the ones doing the work and thinking the hardest about it. It's that they sort of like enabled the people who are doing that to like now actually explore a fundamentally different set of opportunities. And you're right, like new people coming into this space now is like exciting, even within Arcadia, the people that are coming from outside of academia are really like changing things up, you know, and, you know, as an example, like Jed too, like as an investor, one of the first things he said to me and Prachi was like, there, I trust y'all to lead this, but like, you're not allowed to publish in journals. And we were like, Hell yes. Like, that's so exciting to hear that from a funder to be like so passionate about us pushing us to think outside of a box that traditionally funders are like forcing us to operate within, you know, so I, I think that that those themes are probably present for many of the other movements and organizations. But yeah, that's kind of how I think about it. Well, and I think it's a good spot to maybe have us dive into each of the organizations and how you are approaching things different. So to me, you talked a little bit, obviously, about not publishing in, in journals, which is a really interesting idea. I, I want to pull on that thread, uh, parking lot, I pull on that thread a little bit. But so tell me about Arcadia and then how it's approaching things differently. Yeah, so Arcadia, we started it, I guess, two years ago, like very soon into the pandemic. I mean, our, our fire like exploded early, I guess. But at the core of it, what we were trying to figure out as a group of scientists was how to like create a space to optimize our scientific goals. So that is really like what drives Arcadia. Everything else, all the other choices we've made around it are like subservient to that. And so it's not that we wanted to start like a for-profit science institute. It's that we want to do exploratory work across like a broad range of organisms because we think there's a ton of commercial potential as well as general utility potential there. And so what we're talking about is like an area of biology that I think silo disciplines hasn't optimized for by we're looking for like breadth, not depth across organisms. And then second, we're trying to operate at the interface between sort of basic and applied science. So exactly that like valley of death that people talk about all the time that is sort of like where we are trying to do our science and it's not like a pedagogy that exists on its own like people try and reach across the aisle to sort of like academic science and you know you know entrepreneurial science but we're sort of trying to be exactly in the middle of that and so that's been like a really fun experiment for us to like 
take a step back and ask like, what are all the different things we need as an organization, as a team, as a tax structure that would like allow the most efficient way of going about that. And it surprised a lot of people that we are for-profit, that we're for-profit and open science, I think is like a thing that people really struggle with. But to me, those, those choices are like necessary for our goals. We're an experiment. We're in the Bay Area. We're, we're located in Berkeley. We have like our own research infrastructure and research team. We also are essentially, you know, can be mapped onto like a venture company creation studio, but that has like its own sort of like pre-idea research infrastructure. I got a question on the the no publishing. It reminds me of here kind of like the, the, you know, the burning of the boats in, in the Trojan War. If someone is coming and doing the basic research with you guys and not publishing in the traditional path, does that essentially burn any bridge that these people can ever go back to academia? And who is it that's coming? Possibly. You know, who is it that you're recruiting and, and joining the, joining the yeah. group? It's possibly. It. People joining don't give a shit. Like we, we feel too urgent about the science that we need to do to make that our central priority of like protecting their sort of like long-term academic careers. It may be though that my prediction is that the future of scientific information sharing looks really different from today where it shouldn't be a bottleneck in the future. And we are betting on that future that I think is like a foregone conclusion. Like I just don't see how we'll be publishing in journals in the same way, like 10 years from now. Having said that, yeah, I'm looking for risk takers that feel like experimenting on this is frankly more important than buffering against that other risk. And so it's not for everybody. And we try and be really, really transparent about that. But it has to be people that see the risk of not doing this as like greater. And so the other thing I would say, though, is like we are absolutely publishing like really aggressively. And what it does is it both speeds up our science because it you know, allows for feedback, allows for broader sharing with the community and other people using our science is the greatest source of rigor that we can look for. And so I actually think it speeds up a lot of our work, even though not in the ways people normally think about it. And like my real like chessboard move here is like trying to think about how we increase the visibility and publishing of science that happens outside of journals, outside of academia that there are no great ways like for a lot of people operating outside of universities to quickly share their work. Now we're starting to see like a lot of innovation on this front and it's really exciting for people to see people be like, publishing is literally pressing enter on your keyboard. There's many ways we can do that. And there's like, we can diversify the tools there too. But imagine if people in startups and companies, we start normalizing this practice like how much science we actually unblock. There's just so much that happens. And I think all scientists, in, including in industry, are like craving that dialogue. And so we don't have any shortage of like scientists interested in Arcadia that are willing to take that gamble with us because we just don't really see it as a gamble. Like we see it as like the right move and we're on the right side of history. Circles back to our, our measurement question because I know that the, the Nature article that was looking, saying that we were becoming less disruptive was utilizing papers and patents and different, you know, linkages between them as the measure. But if we're essentially blowing up that paradigm, now patents may be a slightly different thing, but at least in the in the the publication method, then we need to think about okay, how how do we measure if we're doing if we're doing a good job, right? It becomes a different equation. 
Yeah. Yeah. It is different. And like, it's like a really like difficult, but interesting discussion we have at Arcadia, you know, like you kind of have to actually just go back to the basics and use your common sense. Like, how do you know if your science is useful and good? Like, what are, what are some more qualitative ways that you like think about that? For me, it's like, if anyone else cares, you know, and if anyone else reuses it, reuse, I think is like a way underappreciated. And I'm not talking about like citations. I'm talking about like the knowledge unit you release, someone was able to iterate on top of that or use the actual tool. That's like a very different thing, you know? And that's been like kind of fun. We haven't figured it out. I would say like, we're just, but that's the kind of energy, like we need people who are like interested in going past that superficial level above with metrics and like, what are we actually trying to like measure here and what's the goal, you know? When I think about like CRISPR, for me, and not someone who you know, dives deeply into the, you know, into the academic literature, but it's not that everybody is quoting the, the seminal paper where, it, you know, it was announced. It's, hey, we had CRISPR. Now we have base editing. Now we have prime editing. We have trials on, you know, sickle cell using CRISPR. To, that alone is a measure that it was a truly disruptive and innovative thing. Not that it's probably been cited 10,000 times or whatever it's been, but like the real, as you said, the real as is this moving things forward is the actual measure of innovation. Yeah, I agree. Yeah. Vincent, I want to kind of jump over to you with, with Vita Dow, like, and obviously crypto is one of the ways that I first kind of come across this, you know, DSI uh, kind of terminology and landscape. So I'd be great to talk about kind of what it is and how you're approaching things differently, because obviously it's not an institution, it's something different. Yeah, I think what's, what's interesting to explain it a bit like VitaDAO is kind of like a online native community that runs on on Ethereum and is ultimately governed through a token. And it's mainly funding translational longevity research and incubating it. But it, it's also actually doing experiments in new scientific journals, in like microgrants for students and scientists, actually together with Allison and, and Forsyth and many others uh, doing like a scientific prize. So it's basically almost like I view it as like an uh, online community that comes together around a specific mission and purpose, in this case, um, advancing longevity research and solving age-related diseases and trying out different experiments. And I view this like, of course, it, it's running on crypto, but I, I view this more broadly in the lens of like applied meta science. And like maybe to just like uh, explain a bit what I mean with that, it's like meta science, of course, is like the field of studying science with the mechanisms of science, like figuring out how science is broken and what potential solutions could look like. And decentralized science, I think concretely, is using decentralized technologies like crypto to figure out potential solutions. But I think even open science for me is like a, an, another direction for like applied meta science or like what Michael Nielsen calls networked science. And I think all of those actually share a lot of commonalities and, and are quite similar to, yeah, to focus in on, on decentralized science. What we're Concretely doing is we're both working actually with academics and helping them bridge the valley of death by funding them in their early translation research experiments, really giving them also like actionable and active input on how they can increase the likelihood of translating their research. So it's not kind of uh, traditional basic science. It's actually meant to translate into the clinic, but then also really by having, for example, successful biotech founders and entrepreneurs in the community who give feedback and evaluate the research 
of academics and, and give them input on how they could increase the odds of, of translation. But even they, they make the hard decisions to kill projects that don't progress towards uh, translation instead of wasting uh, more money into it. But we are also experimenting with kind of like research happening outside of academia. So kind of like either in actually startups, where, which we are working with, or also kind of like by independent research organizations. So I think it's quite experimental and like quite early. It's like roughly two years old, um, but it's more like a test bed for applied experiments, taking in some of the lessons, what doesn't work well in the current scientific paradigm and figuring out potential solutions. I think a lot of these things will fail. It's a bit like startup culture. You try out an MVP and like you iterate and you figure out if it uh, improves the system. But I think what is important is like the NIH is, is not trying to iterate itself and like at least not on the surface, it's, it seems quite stagnant. And I think that's one of the problems we have with current scientific, like the, the, the big current scientific institutions. They're quite hard to adapt and, and, and they're very um, adversarial to change, I think, at times. And we really just try to build like an alternative experiment that like can iterate more quickly run novel experiments, not just on like scientific funding, but as mentioned also on every other aspect. So what's then the, the benefit or the, the reasoning behind it being on blockchain and not just being a new and interesting granting institute group? I think one way I view it is like broadly to get everyone in the world the possibility to get involved. And ultimately, there's no way, if you think about it, for like 99% of the world to get involved in longevity research. Like they, are, they don't have MD, PhDs. Like they, they are, they're not, don't have the background to join a startup. They don't have the background to get started at Harvard or at like even your average university. But maybe they have money to actually throw behind this. But maybe they are not an accredited investor, which is also 99% of the world. So they can't even invest in longevity startups. So I think there's like for many reasons it's pretty hard to get involved in science for like the majority of our world. And I think ultimately the goal of crypto, I think very concisely is permissionless access. Like ultimately that like you don't have to ask someone for permission. You just can get involved. And I think that's quite important. It's like, because I think everything about science is permissioned. It's like gate kept to the maximum. And, and ultimately the whole goal is to make it much easier for people like we have like 14 year olds or like 17 year olds in Kazakhstan, like involved in longevity research, which I think frankly wouldn't have an easy time to get involved in a traditional system. And I think that's like one of the things at the core is like ultimately growing the amount of people that could get involved in science, like in science funding and even writing an article or like evaluating a research proposal. And it can also like learn in the open, like ultimately if a researcher comes to us, people evaluate the research and write out the proposal and then we have literally anonymous people going over the research, asking good questions and getting answers from the researcher, but also in the same form, the head of Pfizer Ventures also, also asking his questions in the open and other people can learn from it. So I think it's almost like, not like a mentorship program, but like it, it allows people to learn things that are otherwise often hidden and gatekept behind startups or universities. So all of that makes sense to me, and maybe I'm being slightly dense in this, why do you need the crypto and Ethereum part to do all the pieces you just said? The question for me is, is maybe how would you do it otherwise? Like, and I don't have a good answer. Like, like you couldn't do it with PayPal, you know, or with like MasterCard, like, uh, because they don't allow for programmable governance for programmable, in our case, IP tokens for 
tokens that grant uh, membership rights, membership benefits, governance rights, all of these things. Like I think the power really was like for the people that have don't have much understanding of, of crypto. And, and I think it's easy to also have like a misunderstanding of crypto. It's like you couldn't do it with Bitcoin, but with Ethereum, you have smart contracts. So Ethereum enabled kind of this concept of a DAO, of a decentralized autonomous organization, which VitaDAO is. And it enabled uh, really like a composable stack of, of like allowing, for example, what we build as a primitive to bring science on chain and to allow what we call like an IP NFT or research NFT, a research asset where people can upload data, which can be used as an access key to access the data. You have ownership over the research. And all of these things are not possible with like Web2 or with traditional finance, maybe. And I think the, there, there is, of course, like the whole space of like network science and even like on, online forums discussing research, which resemble a lot of this. But I think the, the core part is that everyone who puts in time or money gets actual governance rights in deciding the direction of, of the research organization. And I think that's quite hard to do with like mechanisms before that. Got it. No, that, that, that does make a lot of sense and being able to use the, the programmable aspect and you're right. Like, and I, I understand Ethereum and the smart contract and being able to do those types of connections and be able to, as you see, like the, the programmable, you know, the more money, you put, time and effort you put in, the more you get out, which, yeah, I guess we could do time cards, but that's probably not the best and most efficient way to do this. So Allison, your uh, foresight is not two years old. It's a little bit older than that. What's kind of the origin story with, uh, with foresight and how does it evolve given all the stuff that we're talking about? Yeah, well, I can't tell you the whole story because it exists longer than I've been alive. <laughs> but I think, you know, since the very early days, it was basically founded by um, Eric Drexler and Christine Peterson uh, based on a book, Engines of Creation, which uh, kind of like nerd sniped uh, lots of folks that were in the Bay Area at the time. And it, it laid out this very ambitious future of molecular nanotechnology in kind of like tandem with other technological development, in particular artificial intelligence, having kind of like wonderful impacts on human longevity, uh, human spaceflight, on the biosphere and so forth. And so since then, you know, many early folks kind of like assemble at these annual gatherings. And sometimes I go back into our archives and it's like many of the names that we now know that are relatively established in tech were like very young and kind of chipper at these conferences. And so it's, it's been like a really interesting, I think, just like early shelling point for many people that cared a lot about technological development. And it also had a lot of parallel strands with the cypherpunks. And that's why I think this kind of like notion of decide and decentralized science development has always been like kind of at the heart of many people within Fawcett uh, generally. They've been pretty like, I guess, like parallel and pretty like, yeah, anti-hierarchical in the way that they like to collaborate and they like to progress the different technologies that they see. But basically, since an early main focus on nanotechnology over the kind of like years, we've also kind of like taken on other areas. And so one is neurotechnology, and there it's a focus on um, breaking bridge interfaces and whole brain emulations. One is molecular nanotechnology, um, which kind of like used to be at our core from the early ages, but then also intelligent cooperation, which is our like word for decentralized computing, cryptography, and AI. Then there's space, which also has some fusion energy. Like uh, one of our kind of like earlier presidents, Josh Stores Hall, published a book on where's my flying car. Uh, so he's really into uh, energy. And so we we've kind of taken on a lot of like other individual technologies as well with a big one focus on longevity where we've collaborated on a, uh, on a few things but the idea here really is that we try to use different tools to help advance projects that usually don't get funding uh, in the legacy environments and not just funding but also like general support so we have 
virtual seminars, in-person workshops to drive more progress on like frontier bits, but also fellowships that are not funded, but where it's mostly soft support. So let's say you're a new person entering a field or you've been in a field for quite some time, but you're like um, interested in having more an interdisciplinary lens on a specific topic. And then the fellowship tries to match make you with other people across different fields because we're at the intersection of a few fields. We can often kind of like make connections where it's otherwise difficult to even see how you break out of out of a silo. And we do fund some. We have some grants program as well. But like we just try to kind of like yeah, apply different tooling for enabling scientific progress to occur. And sometimes it's a prize, the longevity collaboration that we have with VitaDAO. Sometimes it's a grant. Sometimes it's a fellowship. We're pretty, I guess, tool agnostic. And somewhat also field agnostic, but mostly try to kind of like go there where it's either too ambitious, too early, too weird, or too like interdisciplinary for, I guess, like legacy orgs to to go. And that's been fun so far. <laughs> Since you are continuing to grow the areas of research you, got, you are looking at, and then also you said you're tool agnostic, given the time that the organization's been around, are we starting to see tools or sectors that that go well together like prize funding works well in here grant funding works well we, we kind of getting any sort of trends on what might be catalytic a, a good catalyst depending on the on the the field and sector yeah so i would say the prizes still work really well like we have the Feynman prize for molecular nanotechnology that works really well still for that field also because it's been given out now since 1991 and I think in general, there for the molecular nanotechnology space, philanthropic funding is more important rather than VC money. I think for longevity, you know, VC funding is a little bit more important than uh, philanthropic funding is also still very important, but you can do things now with, I guess, like more private normal capital. So that's definitely a big difference, just like how far along are people on the kind of like on the the, the general kind of like funding pipeline. That's a big difference. And then obviously like, Another big one that you see is that AI is kind of really infiltrating all of the fields. So it's a funny in our intelligent corporation group, the one that is mostly really focused on kind of cryptography, security and AI. That's the one where people are um, almost most pessimistic about AI these days. And then all of our other groups like molecular nanotechnology, the biotech group, the neurotech group, people love the new AI tools that they're getting, like brain GPT for the neurosciences. And it's just really amazing. Um, you know, AlphaFold then also kind of like percolated into uh, projects like Rosetta for molecular simulations and so forth. So like in all the other fields, apart from the one that's actually focused on AI, people are so stoked about AI progress. So that's definitely been a multiplying factor for many fields. And I'm sure I'm not saying anything new that uh, that Vincent and Simai have, haven't uh, discovered before. But yeah, super curious to also hear your thoughts. One question I have, and Vincent is a little bit kind of building off what you'd said, but also Alice, about like AI getting everywhere, right? So we have... A lot of these AI tools are suddenly out in the consumer world first, right? ChatGPT being the, the big one, but we're seeing a lot of different uses there. You're also seeing a lot more of these decentralized access to stuff, just access to experimentation, being able to do these different things. And a lot of the work being done generally, as I've seen, or at least the work that's being done that that moves the needle is still being done by quote unquote scientists. So you, there's certain still a hoop jumping in and hierarchical path you have to get through. The question is, I think based on different, there's different off ramps that you can go on. 
But my question, I've gotten in on the podcast for a couple of different debates on this. Do we see that opportunity for the the non-scientist, where you can take something like a chat GPT and say, teach me everything that's already out in the longevity space. And that, is, and so I don't have a PhD in it, but I'm learning via AI and then being able to use these tools to come at it from a completely different angle. I'll say that in previous discussions with some, like an, I had, I was like an AI professor I had on, there was a little bit of a debate on whether that expertise level, you know, things were still going to be coming from that direction versus the 25-year-old who says, I'm jumping in, I'm learning about this stuff, and then now I, I've got, a, I've got a, enough of a baseline to be dangerous and start playing with it and maybe we'll do something different. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I think like there's a lot of different points. I think as one of the starting points, like I think there's a lot of more non-scientists, let's call them, getting involved in the sciences like I and, and, and really pushing them forward. I think the simplest example, going back to my earlier one, tech people, and quite broadly, and, and of course, even some of them did study physics, right? Like even the Elons of this world or uh, the Sam Altman's. And I think they have the right mindset and culture to really make a huge dent in science. And I think this directly relates to AI, right? Like ultimately, not everyone on the AlphaFold team was a like scientist in, in maybe like the traditional sense. Maybe they were like an AI scientist. But I think in general, like our goal is like that everyone in the world could get involved in science. I think realistically, of course, you need a certain skill you could add, but like for some people, it's honestly even like being able to access the paper to read about science or like to break it down, to be able to get involved, even like evaluating the COVID research that is happening on vaccines. I don't know, like really important that like everyone in the world can at some point follow science, access science and be part of science. But I think to your point, what I think is really interesting with AI, I think like actually like a few interesting things Concretely, I think you said, of course, like the, the biggest thing we've seen in the last few years is just like LLMs just trained on text. I think interesting one will be like connected to AlphaFold. Actually, Facebook's AI team did an interesting also protein, like basically large protein model called uh, ESM, where they, the, the same scaling laws and scaling hypothesis for text uh, that like also holds true for image and video, also holds true for like chemistry, proteins, physics, etc. And, and ultimately, even a really interesting blog post called GPT 2030 by Jacob Steinart, like who, who was also working with OpenAI. He basically makes a prediction that like we'll train big foundation models on new modalities, including scientific modalities like chemistry, physics, etc. And and I think the interesting one is even Dario Amodai, like the CEO of Anthropic, one of the Frontier AGI labs, like said uh, in Congress, like I think a few weeks or months ago, that basically the biggest worry is that probably in like two, two or three years, I think was his estimate, uh, large language models will have the skill to create novel pathogens, to create novel molecules, novel um, scientific breakthroughs at the end of the day. And I think, of course, it's like a double-edged sword, but I, I wouldn't be surprised if you had like a multimodal scientific foundation model, even next few years. Like I don't want to make like a concrete prediction, but like at some point, I think it will come and will be able to lead to novel scientific Breakthroughs, and I think to your point, like even ChatGPT, I think of course is not there yet as a scientific tool, but I think ultimately will have much more powerful tools to enable many more people to get involved in science. And I think very interestingly to your other point, I do think science is becoming increasingly online native. What I mean with that is like at some point you will be able to run it, run your AI bio experiments, 
you'll send them to your cloud lab, you'll learn from them. And I actually think in that paradigm, like academia, physical universities, like similar to when COVID hit and like suddenly everything was remote, I incredibly ill-prepared for like an online native research environment. And, and for example, with us, like we funded literally orgs that are like LabDAO that are doing online native COO, like contract research contracting, like that really make it easier to do it in silico, drug discovery, like AI bio. And all of these things, I think like it won't take long and you can, from your computer, hopefully discover drugs and like literally don't even need a lab. I think it, it quite quickly, like you won't be able to pipette quickly enough compared to like a robot. I, I definitely hope so. And I think like ultimately the timeline for things like cloud labs has been longer than, than some people anticipated. But I think... Like it will still get there at some point. Like it would be very pessimistic if like people are still pipette in five years even on ten. Like it will still happen, but I think it's not the future I would like to see. Like I think we, we need higher throughput. Like you you want the equivalent of like what might need take a hundred years of people pipetting, you could do paralyzed in one minute. And like that's huge. Like that's speed up. I, I, st I still have nightmares from when I was short short about nine months that I was working in a lab and pipetting and hoping that moving clear liquid from one vial to another occasionally had something appear, which is why I didn't last very long in a, in a lab. I actually think this is kind of a, a great place to kind of wrap and start looking at, you know, at the future. And we always kind of ask the same question. So I frame it a little bit differently here, but I'll just frame it this way. I'll start with you, Sume. What's next in this space? The decentralized science space, as, as, we, as we move forward into, with these new tools, with these new models that are coming out, you know, what, what happens next? I think a couple things. Uh, one is that, like, I think in the future, we won't maybe feel quite as much of a need to differentiate between, like, decentralized and centralized because decentralized will be just more normal. And I think another thing is that we're going to start seeing some of the current, like, more decentralized efforts yielding like scientific returns and like opportunities and maybe like the next generation of stuff that comes out of that either directly like leveraging some of the opportunities that arose or sort of like the second generation of like organizational iterations around that i mean i think for us like at arcadia our hope is to see more people borrow some of like the aspects of our model which is yet another reason why we try and be open about what we're doing but yeah, I think that that's next in, in those realms. I think in terms of like science and scientific progress in general, I think, you know, the AI advances are extremely exciting to me because I think this is going to be one of the like technological breakthroughs that gets us across the like whatever stagnant threshold we're at that people think we're at. Because what we spent a ton of time doing in the last two decades is like generating massive amounts of data. What we don't yet have are like tools to systematically curate and like synthesize a bunch of information across those at like in a more scalable, efficient way. And that is going to produce like a ton of new hypotheses, like our ability to ask questions is going to improve. Even if the high fruit goals don't change, I think we're going to start getting closer because many times the reason we're not really moving is because we're not asking the right questions because the manual sort of like, you know, guessing and curation and hypothesizing, it can only take you so far. But there's like another thing that's right in front of us that's about to explode. Yeah, Vincent, why don't you let us know? What do you think? What, what's coming next? 
I think it's hard to say. I think like a few things that I'm quite certain about is like one uh, to Sima's point, like like I think like the um, names of it don't really matter for me. Like in in general, like applied meta science experiments from Acadia to like some of the focus research organizations to some efforts uh, like MetaDAO. I think some of them will prove out and some of them will fail and iterate and learn and adapt and improve. And I think ultimately as a whole, I think they'll advance uh, scientific progress. And I think that's great. I think ultimately AI will be one of the main drivers of scientific progress. And I think increasingly so. And I think I would be very surprised if it doesn't lead us to this very like digital native scientific discovery era that is like less physically bound. And yeah, I think connected to that, like I would be surprised if like in in 15 years, we wouldn't have extremely powerful scientific AI where like ideally humans are still in the loop and which we can still interpret and which we can still evaluate the scientific discoveries. So I think uh, I'm also still optimistic enough that I think we'll still be around 20 years. (laughs) But yeah, that's, that's most of my predictions. If I could just like a quick follow up on what Vincent said, I mean, I totally agree to the degree that I'm like actually sometimes worried and, and both Jed and I think about this a lot, like how access to compute right now could really like have an impact on scientific progress as a whole. And definitely for a lot of academic enterprises, I'm like concerned that they're not thinking about this enough. And so we've been like trying to think creatively in this on this front, because that's kind of like the future currency for progress. 100%. Allison, what's next? Well, that's a very, very big question. Um, An easy one too, right? Yes, very easy, very easy. Well, maybe to break it down to two individual bits. So one is kind of like the discussion maybe that we've been having about getting like more meta science or decentralized, taking a look at science on this more kind of like holistic way. So I think for there, it's been really interesting actually to see, you know, I'm, I'm in San Francisco. I often kind of complain about how things are done here. Nevertheless, would never leave. But it's been interesting to see that here you have in the U.S. in general, you have many organizations like, you know, Astera, like Convergent Research, like Spectech, like many of these kind of alternatives to the existing more kind of like governmental funding arms already emerging. And then when I go back like to Europe, for example, there you have things like ARIA or like JEDI or like Sprint. Uh, kind of gradually popping up, but they are still kind of government run, uh, oftentimes to a big extent. So I think in Europe, we're still trying to build orgs like DARPA here. And I think here, many people are building kind of like these orgs already in a very private uh, fashion, or like maybe even in a more decentralized fashion, I'm not quite sure. But I think it will be A, really interesting to see what are organizations like Area, Jedi and Sprint, like more the newer kind of like governmental organizations in Europe learning from the more decentralized private efforts here uh, that are moving away from the more uh, governmental uh, kind of like funding mandates. And then secondly, also, like, will this continue? Like, is this now a thing that, like, we'll see in more countries all over the world, like, more kind of like their private efforts to kind of like uh, giving an alternative output or an alternative funding arm and an alternative an alternative harbor for uh, scientists that are not really being catered for by the establishment. So that that's going to be really interesting to see. And then I think more on the kind of perhaps like technological level, I'm, I think I'm more echoing what Seema and Vincent probably already said, but I do think that... And AI-enabled progress will be pretty important for technology development. Um, I also think that more general AI solutions, so things like Pasta, for example, um, which 
as on, on cold takes from, from Holden Kanowski, like basically like general purpose AI frameworks for doing scientific research. So what if instead of like, you know, having kind of like uh, the, the prediction of like the next token as like, you know, like the next word that you should be using, but generally like the next kind of like, you know, scientific, a bit of information that you can be building. So something like AlphaFold, but like on a more general purpose level. And um, I think that would be really, really exciting. And then I think thinking it just like one step further, once we have that, then other technological fields will be sped up that again have kind of like collateral effects on other fields, including on AI. So for example, if you think about compute, for example, for a second, like AI progress that leads to more breakthroughs on the nanotechnology level could lead to much, much better compute, right? Like um, for optical computing, for all kinds of things that will, uh, again, like accelerate AI and could maybe also like perhaps make the compute bottleneck that we're facing not that dangerous on the long run, uh, I would say. Um, and so I think that this kind of like flywheel that gets set in motion through AI progress that kind of like feeds back into itself by also uh, accelerating material science development and so forth, that I think is also something that we will be seeing much more of, and let alone the AI progress that goes on to longevity research and so forth. But like this kind of like feedback loop um, is, I think, something that uh, often at least comes up in like more of our other material science oriented groups. So whether we actually have hit any stagnation or not, but at least I feel like after this conversation, I do feel like the innovation in science flywheel seems to be going faster. And I love all the different experimentation. This has been a lot of fun and I really appreciate everyone coming on. And so I just want to say, Simo, Vincent, and uh, Allison, thank you so much for joining the podcast. Thanks for inviting us, Jason. Yeah, thanks for putting this together. It was so fun. Thank you so much. So what's next, Austin? We're glad you've joined us on this journey. Please subscribe at your favorite podcast catcher. Leave us a review and let your colleagues know about us. This will help us grow the podcast and continue bringing you unique interviews and insights. Thanks again for listening and see you soon.